My guest today is Professor Jonathan Schooler. Professor Schooler is a researcher and is a professor of psychology at the University of California. His scientific research focuses on consciousness and memory and on topics such as meta-awareness, mind-wandering and mindfulness. He's the author of more than 130 research articles. Professor Jonathan Schooler is with me on the phone from California. Jonathan, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Jonathan, before we begin our discussion on the subjects of mind-wandering, mindfulness and meta-awareness, Please tell us about yourself, about your education, and about your research work uh, as a psychologist. Yes, well, I um, grew up in Washington, D.C., and I went to Hamilton College, which is a small college in Upper New York State, and then went uh, and pursued my Ph.D. at the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington. And uh, since then, I've been a professor at a number of different institutions, including the University of Pittsburgh, the University of British Columbia in Canada, and now at um, UC Santa Barbara. And my research uh, really spans uh, over a, a lot of different areas. I, I find it um, challenging to just stay focused on one particular topic, so mind-wandering sort of comes naturally to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, over the years, I've investigated things such as a phenomenon known as verbal overshadowing, which is the finding that when you describe a difficult-to-describe experience, such as a face or a color, it can actually interfere with your later ability to um, recognize it. I've worked in problem-solving and creativity, finding, for example, that if you think out loud while trying to solve an insight problem, these are the kind of aha kind of problems that that can, in some situations, interfere with the ability to reach a solution. Um, I've worked in uh, eyewitness memory, looking at how fall uh, misinformation can interfere with people's memories for the original experience and most recently i've been focusing on consciousness and in particular mind wandering and people's tendency to drift away from the here and now thinking about thoughts unrelated to what's going on around them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, jonathan metacognition uh, can be described as cognition about cognition Uh, thinking about thinking, uh, perhaps knowing about knowing. Uh, In your work, you describe meta-awareness as the ability to take explicit note of the current contents of the consciousness. Talk to us about these two terms, metacognition and meta-awareness. Sure. Metacognition is the broader term, which is cognition about cognition. So you could have Um, your general knowledge about how your memory works or your experience of the tip of the tongue where you have the sense that uh, a word is about to come tumbling out of your mouth but you just can't quite get it yet. And meta-awareness is a particular kind of metacognition. It's um, where it's your consciousness of your current conscious state or your awareness of your current conscious state. And my favorite example of meta-awareness is an experience that everybody is familiar with. Mm -hmm. And that's when you're reading, and at some point during the time that you're reading, you realize that although your eyes have continued to move across the page, that your mind has been elsewhere. And there's Mm -hmm. this this sort of sheepish feeling of, oh, there I, I've done it again. Where was I when I stopped paying attention? Mm -hmm. And that moment of realizing that um, you were mind-wandering as opposed to reading is a moment of meta-awareness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Now, mind wandering uh, can be described as a phenomenon uh, when a person's attention is less directed towards external environment and when the person's attention shifts more towards an internal train of thought. Talk to us uh, more about uh, mind wandering. Well, um, one of the things that's so notable about mind wandering is just how often we do it. Research suggests that somewhere between 20 and 50 percent of the time, people's minds are not in the present. They're not thinking about what's going on around them. They're thinking about something sort of unrelated to what's taking place. So the example of uh, mind wandering while reading, where you're reading, but you're actually thinking about something else is, is a classic example. Another one that people have all the time is where they're driving and they're not paying attention to uh, where, where they're going. They may even drive right past the exit. But uh, this happens in all sorts of contexts. It happens uh, when people are having conversations. Um, it happens when uh, people are at work. It happens when they're at play. It happens when they're watching television. Any time in which you're not paying attention to what's going on around you, uh, mm-hmm. that seems to be uh, what we would call mind-wandering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you are saying that um, uh, the studies uh, show that from 25% to 50% of our working are perhaps, you know, the time that when, you, when we are awake, uh, uh, mind-wandering happens? That's right, yes. Are, are there any studies that tell us that why for certain individual it is 25%, 30%, why for certain other individuals it's maybe 50%? Well, there do seem to be some um, individual differences that are predictive of, uh, of mind-wandering. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing, uh, unfortunately, is, um, is sadness. So when people are uh, depressed, um, they, will be, um, they will be more likely to uh, mind-wander. Um, unfortunately, this is the sort of mind-wandering, the least productive kind of mind-wandering, where they're perhaps just uh, ruminating about... Um, negative experiences that they either had or that they're anticipating having. So mm-hmm. that's sort of a, a downside. Um, but there's also individuals who uh, enjoy uh, mind-wandering, who find it to um, uh, be a productive uh, thing to think about. They think about the future. They think about ideas and abstract uh, notions. Um, and these individuals also tend to mind-wander uh, a good bit. In, in research that we've been doing lately, we've been looking at creative individuals, uh, physicists and writers, mm-hmm. and looking at um, the kind of uh, situations under which they have their ideas. And we find nearly 40% of the ideas that they have, their creative ideas each day, uh, happen during mind-wandering. So uh, mind-wandering is associated, um, or the, a high tendency for mind-wandering is on the one hand associated with some negative things, such as general um, sadness and, 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 and negative mood, uh, but also associated with positive things such as uh, the, the creative individual. So you cannot generalize this, that, uh, that, uh, that this is a good thing or bad thing? Exactly. Uh, there's there, um, there is our, our, our great value to mind-wandering, and there's also great costs. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really sort of finding the right balance. One thing does seem to be clear, and that's that there are better and worse times to mind-wander. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're a surgeon, that's a really bad time to be, uh, and, and doing surgery, it's a very bad time to be mind-wandering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. However, if you're, uh, you know, doing um, housework, uh, then that may be a fine time uh, to mind-wandering, or gardening. And in fact, we find that um, mind-wandering, if you're engaging in a non-demanding task, is a particularly um, productive type of, of mind-wandering. That seems to be when people get the most benefit from 
um, work if if they've been working on a creative problem and then you give them a non-demanding task which encourages mind wandering and then you give them the creative problem again uh, they oftentimes show a benefit the second time round having engaged in this non-demanding task that allowed for mind wandering and that may be why um, we oftentimes have ideas when we're say in the shower uh, or um, taking a stroll so you are suggesting that uh, if our mind is paying attention to internal thoughts and at that time we are not engaged in a critical task the mind wandering could be fine uh, similarly if we are paying attention to internal thoughts that are not negative and perhaps our mind is wandering about our future plans our long term goals uh, then this is also not bad so if a person can fine tune these parameters in such a way that the overall outcome uh, is positive then we can say that mind wandering could then be a positive activity for that person exactly there are different things that you can be thinking about mhm um that are going to have a a a a majorly different impact on uh both the your output and also uh, on your on your well-being we found for example that um in general if people are uh, mind wandering uh, they're less happy than if they're paying attention but if they're mind wandering about something that they find especially interesting mm-hmm. they're actually more happy than they were if they were um on task so it really depends what they're mind wandering about mm-hmm. um whether or not it's going to be uh, productive for them or not and as you um rightly pointed out it also depends on when they're doing it mm-hmm. um they need to mind wander at times when it's expedient and to avoid doing it when um if you're being given important instructions bad time to mind wander if you're you know listening to a a mindless television show a fine time to mind wander mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is mind wandering uh, an attribute of attention or is it an attribute of consciousness i would i would say both mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. attention and, and consciousness are, are are terms that get bandied about um a fair bit in in psychology and and of course in in everyday life uh, and they have various different meanings but in general at least the way that i use it i would use consciousness as the the general state of experience so when we wake up in the morning uh, to the time we fall asleep at night where we're conscious and and different things are entering our consciousness and then attention is the focus of consciousness it's it's sort of if you sort of imagine consciousness as sight then um attention would be where you're looking it's the spotlight mm-hmm. and so um in that context both those constructs consciousness the the overall uh, experience and also attention are very relevant to mind wandering and and in mind wandering what's happening is that um attention is being moved away from external events towards uh, internal uh, thoughts and feelings and that's then coloring what's going on in consciousness mhm mhm uh, jonathan substantial research uh, has been done to study uh, that how our attention is directed at external objects at external mm-hmm. environment however less research has been devoted to study that how our attention is affected by our internal thoughts so when did we start studying mind wandering uh, in detail well um there was some very important research done on on mind wandering and daydreaming back in the 1960s Jerome uh, Singer and his student Antrobus um did some really uh, pioneering work in this and a number of uh, other uh, individuals such as uh, Klinger and Jambra 
uh, Teasdale. So there were about there was a handful of people um, who were uh, doing research uh, on mind wandering and daydreaming since mm-hmm. the 60s. Mm-hmm. But by and large, that research did not really enter the mainstream. If you were to look at say a introductory psychology textbook, you mm-hmm. would typically not see it. Um, it certainly wasn't appearing in the uh, in the in the media. Uh, are getting much public attention, and besides those five or six researchers, people were pretty much ignoring it. They were studying attention, as you rightfully pointed out, but the way they were looking at it is looking at people's attending to external things when they're looking in one place versus looking in another place, rather than looking at how attention can vacillate back and forth between the external world and internal mm-hmm. thoughts and feelings. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really been... I would say since around uh, 2000 that um, the, there's been this just massive increase in the study of mind-wandering. And it's, it's hard to know entirely why that is. I think a, a number of different things contributed to it. First, mm-hmm. um, psychology was for a long time burdened with something known as the behaviorist perspective, which basically said that we could only study active behaviors. And mind-wandering is you know, so the, op- is the exact opposite of that, right? There's, there's nothing, there's no external evidence or no obvious external evidence of mind-wandering. It's all going on internally. So mm-hmm. in order to study mind-wandering, we had to really shed the, the burden, the shackles of this uh, behaviorist perspective. And that's just been a very gradual process that started really in the 80s, but it, it took a while to get over that. And I think that people were, were skeptical uh, in about measuring mind-wandering because there's, again, no obvious external indicators of it. You had to rely on people's self-reports, and researchers were wary of of people's self-reports. But since around um, 2000, um, there have been um, increasing numbers of studies that really show that when people say that they're mind-wandering, that it all lines up in exactly the kind of ways that you'd expect it to line up if they really were mind-wandering. So we now have evidence that when people say they're mind-wandering, that they have differences in brain activity, they have differences in electrical activity uh, coming out of the brain, the EEG. We see differences in reaction times. Uh, and one paradigm that I've been involved in that I think is uh, very telling is looking at people's eye movements as they're reading. Mm-hmm. And if people are reading and they're mind-wandering, the pattern of gaze durations, the way that they look at words, is systematically different than if they are actually paying attention to the material. So all of these different kinds of evidence uh, support the view that we can really accurately assess people's mind-wandering simply by asking them, just now, were you mind-wandering? And I think as researchers have become increasingly comfortable Mm -hmm. uh, with this type of measurement, they've been using it more and more and making great strides in understanding this very important aspect of human cognition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, when a person's mind uh, wanders, the person's perception becomes decoupled and the person shows reduced responsiveness to the external environment. Uh, talk to us about that. Yes, so this is very relevant to what I was just saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the things that is um, very clear is that when people mind wander, they seem to dampen their attention to the external world. And this leads to um, reduced processing of external stimuli. And we can see this 
in uh, a number of, uh, of different ways. When we look at their um, various different EEG measures, or, uh, these are brain electrical activity measures that mm-hmm. show mm-hmm. people's sensitivity to external stimuli. We see that those responses to external stimuli are less pronounced when people are mind-wandering. We see that uh, people's processing of external information is less pronounced, and so they uh, remember the material that they've encountered less when they're mind-wandering. And so essentially what seems to happen is that when people mind-wander, they are sort of putting on blinders to the external world and, and drawing their attention inward. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that our minds are disengaged from what is going on around us uh, between 25% and 50% of our working hours. How do we measure uh, mind wandering? Uh, you highlight two approaches uh, uh, that you use under lab conditions to study uh, and sample mind wandering in your research papers. Tell us about these approaches to study and measure mind wandering. Sure. So there are um, two uh, primary techniques that uh, we've been using in the lab, although there are an, a number of other techniques that I'm happy to, be, to talk about as well. Uh, one technique is to uh, ask people to press a button every time they notice themselves mind-wandering. And the nice thing about this measure is it gives us a, a very good assessment of what we call meta-awareness where meta-awareness, again, is your knowledge about what it is that's going on in your mind at any particular time. Mm -hmm. So if a person presses a button and goes, just now, I notice that my mind is wandering, then that means that mind-wandering had reached meta-awareness. So that's an index that gives us the meta-aware mind-wandering episodes. Mm -hmm. But in addition, we can also probe people at random intervals and ask them, just now, was your mind wandering? Mm -hmm. And if they were tasked with telling us every time they notice themselves mind-wandering, and if we catch the mind-wandering before they notice it themselves, then this gives us a measure of the unnoticed mind-wandering. This is the experience-sampled mind-wandering, or what we also call probe-caught mind-wandering. Mm-hmm. And so when we compare self-caught mind-wandering to probe-caught mind-wandering, we can get a sense of to what degree people are having mind-wandering episodes that they've actually noticed versus mind-wandering episodes that they've failed to notice. And one major thing that we've discovered with this line of research is just how often people mind-wander without realizing it. It seems that the majority of mind-wandering episodes actually occur without people explicitly noticing that they're doing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are some other techniques also that you are using in your labs? Yes, there are. Um, another technique is known as the retrospective approach, where people, say, participate in a task And then at the end of the task, we just ask them to estimate what proportion of the time they think that they were mind-wandering. This has the disadvantage that we're not getting it in real time, but it has the advantage that we're not interfering with the task as they're doing it by interrupting them and asking them, just now, were you Mm -hmm. Mm mind-wandering? Another technique that we're um, just now uh, developing, we call um, gibberish detection. And in this paradigm... People are reading text that periodically turns to gibberish. That is, it's the right words, but they're in the wrong position. Mm-hmm. And what we find is, is that when people are mind-wandering, they can actually read for some time without noticing that what they're reading makes absolutely no sense. And so that provides us with sort of a nice indirect measure of mind-wandering. If 
if people are reading and they haven't noticed that what they're reading is meaningless, uh, it seems pretty evident that they're mind-wandering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as during mind-wandering, cognitive resources uh, become uh, occupied by internal activity that is unrelated to the external environment, uh, then it is obvious that mind-wandering interferes with the primary task that the person is doing at that time. Uh, tell us about the disruption that mind-wandering uh, can produce. Yes, and, and this is really gets back to the point that I was uh, emphasizing earlier, which mm-hmm. is that mind-wandering is really a two-edged sword. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it can be very useful for planning. It's a great source of creative inspiration. Uh, but on the other hand, it can be very disruptive to what someone is working on at the moment. In uh, our research, uh, we found that one of the major sources of reading comprehension failure is mind-wandering. It's not that people don't have the skill set to understand the material. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, it's simply that they're just not paying attention to it. We also find that um, across a great variety of different cognitive measures, sort of the common denominator thing which can interfere with people's performance is mind-wandering. So even things as um, that you might think people wouldn't mind-wander on, say taking an intelligence test, or um, the in the United States we have the uh, SATs, mm-hmm. um, people seem to mind-wander even in these very demanding situations, and in those situations it can lead to a significant reduction in the quality of performance. We're doing research now looking at mind-wandering in the cockpit. We've looked at um, uh, professional pilots mm-hmm. in a uh, 747 um, simulator, and sure enough, we find that pilots uh, mind-wander, mm-hmm. and that um, these mind-wandering episodes can lead to um, uh, errors. That's very interesting study. Are there any more findings uh, about pilots? Not only have we found that the mind-wandering contributes to um, errors, these are small errors. It, um, we haven't, you know, all the, all the pilots have successfully you know, mm-hmm. taken off and landed the planes, but mm-hmm. they've missed altitudes, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also looked at the co-pilot. Mm-hmm. So the co-pilot has an especially uh, challenging task, right, because the co-pilot has to basically be just watching uh, and making sure that um, uh, certain things are being done. One of the things that the co-pilot has to do is every thousand uh, meters they need to name off that, uh, that there's been a thousand meter uh, change. Uh, and we find that um, when co-pilots are mind-wandering, they're more likely to miss these critical call-outs. So mm-hmm. it, it affects not only the pilot, but also the monitoring of the co-pilot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you have also studied the impact of mind wandering on on mood, uh, general attitude, on working memory. Can we look at these, uh, uh, say, one by one? So, so how does it uh, impact uh, on mood? Yes. So, this is a um, there was a, a study that uh, came out in uh, Science Magazine, which is uh, uh, one of the most prestigious journals in the field by my colleagues, uh, Killingsworth and Gilbert. Mm-hmm. And in their study, uh, they uh, found that uh, mood, the, when people were mind-wandering, that they were uh, less happy. And they concluded that, uh, from their analysis, that if you were mind-wandering at time one, that you'll be less happy the next time they um, queried people. So their, their conclusion was is that there's really this sort of causal uh, relationship where, at least for some people, mind-wandering can lead to a... Uh, lesser mood. I 
although I, I, I definitely believe that mind-wandering is associated with reduced mood, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit less persuaded by the, uh, the, the causal um, relationship. There. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that needs more research because you can see it could go either way. Uh, one reason why you would find a relationship between mood and mind-wandering is because mind-wandering lessens your mood. But another possibility is, is that when your mood is low, you're more likely to mind-wander. And I'm, I'm very persuaded by that second statement. That is, I'm, I'm quite sure that when people are depressed, they tend to mind-wander more. What I'm less persuaded about is that simply mind-wandering, particularly mind-wandering about something that's not negative, um, in and of itself leads to uh, reduced mood. So that's a, a topic that I think is um, it's certainly that's been suggested. It's been published in a major journal, but I think it's an area that's deserving of uh, more research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, with respect to working memory, mm-hmm. this story also um, has some interesting complications to it. There's a, a lot of research uh, which shows that uh, working memory is associated with um, mind-wandering. Let's back up and define working memory. Working memory mm-hmm. is the amount of information that you can hold in your mind. So if I were to um, give you some numbers uh, and then ask you to, say, do a, a calculation of one sort or another, and then ask you to remember what those numbers were that I just gave you, working memory would be your ability to reproduce the numbers that I've given you uh, mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. And what research shows is that um, People with a higher working memory capacity tend to um, mind-wander less, and they also, interestingly, tend to mind-wander more judiciously. That is, they tend to mind-wander at the more opportune times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, however, there's something that's a little bit problematic about this measurement. Consider if I give somebody a task, I give you uh, some numbers hold on to, then I ask you to do some uh, calculations, and then I ask you to retrieve the numbers. Well, there's one reason why you might not do well on that task, and that's if you mind-wandered during the task. So it's perhaps not that surprising that a mind-wandering is correlated with performance on this task because mind-wandering would impair performance Mm -hmm. on this task. And in fact, that's exactly what we find. We find that one major reason for this association is that people routinely mind-wander while they're engaging in the working memory measure. So that's a, that's a, adds an interesting sort of wrinkle and, and complication to it, but it highlights the point that mind-wandering is just such a ubiquitous phenomena that it really sort of impacts uh, virtually everything that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, how does it uh, uh, impact on general attitude? Um, it, would, it would depend. Mm-hmm. What we do find is, is that uh, certain... Um, attitudes can be um, very, very problematic. One attitude is, is something, uh, is like attitude, I, I think we could call it an attitude. So there's a, a, a phenomena that's uh, really um, a, a major issue, which is something known as a stereotype threat. And that is when people think about um, their, uh, the stereotypes associated with their personal identity, for example, if um, women there's a stereotype that women do less well on, on mathematics. And oh, if women um, think about this, uh, this stereotype, it can actually uh, undermine uh, their performance. Studies have found that simply asking people to report their gender uh, can uh, impair 
uh, women's performance on mathematical tests because they think about their gender, they think about how there's this stereotype that women uh, do less well, and uh, that then leads to uh, impaired performance. And um, so you could think about this sort of stereotype as, as an attitude of a sort, that people have somehow internalized this um, wrong-headed notion about uh, their skills, uh, and um, that is they're potentially vulnerable to that. And what we find is that the way that stereotype uh, threat influences people's performance is through mind-wandering, that when people are, have a stereotype activated, when they're uh, concerned about that they may not do well on a task because of an attribute of their group, that what this seems to do is to lead to increased mind-wandering. So uh, mm-hmm. mind-wandering may be the sort of the medium by which uh, some of these ill-suited attitudes can undermine performance. Mind wandering is being studied from a neural uh, physiological perspective as well. So what happens in the brain during mind wandering activity? Well, uh, this is a very interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be um, thought that uh, the brain was very quiet when people were not given anything uh, to do. Uh, and they discovered in the last uh, 10 to uh, uh 15 years, that there's a a set of regions in the brain known as the uh, default network. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. um, this default network is actually more active when people are not given anything to do than when they're asked to to work on a task. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's been found is that this same region, which is active when people are at rest, particularly active when people are at rest, is also especially active when individuals are um, mind-wandering. Now, ordinarily, when people, um, there are sort of these two networks that tend to be what's known as anti-correlated, when one's on, the other's off. So when people are engaging in demanding tasks, they uh, typically see a greater activation of a network of areas in the brain known as the executive network and reduced activation in a second network known as the default uh, mode network. Um, So they're again, what's called anti-correlated. When people are mind-wandering, curiously, the Mm -hmm. default mode network is increased in activation. But interestingly, the um, executive network can also uh, be activated uh, simultaneously. It seems as if mind-wandering may be this sort of um, state of the brain where regions that uh, oftentimes uh, just don't go hand-in-hand are more likely to work together. Uh, and that may be one reason why mind wandering is uh, associated with um, functionality with respect to creativity. It may be that because these two regions or two networks are able to um, co-activate, uh, that that may allow for uh, crosstalk that doesn't otherwise occur. When a person is engaged in a mind wandering activity. Does the focus of mind wandering dictate which part of brain should be active? In other words, if the focus of my mind wandering activity is something that I am worried about or something that I am afraid of or something that makes me happy, does the part of brain relevant to the emotion that is focus of my mind wandering activity become active? Um, more research uh, needs to be um, needs to be done on this. What mm-hmm. you've 
you've really sort of hit on um, an exciting uh, direction for uh, future research. But, um, but absolutely, um, what we know is, is that when uh, people engage in different mental states that different uh, regions uh, get engaged. So if you're um, in thinking about uh, something uh, frightening, then you'd likely uh, see a greater activation of the amygdala, which is highly involved in emotional experiences. And if you were um, engaging in mind wandering that involved a lot of visualization, if uh, you're fantasizing or, or uh, imagining, say, a beach or something like that, then you'd imagine to see the, uh, the visual cortex. And we also see that um, a lot of mind wandering involves the um, thinking about either the future or the past. And this mental time travel is especially associated with a region of the brain known as the hippocampus. So um, while there certainly are some uh, general patterns of activity that seem to be associated with mind wandering uh, across domains, uh, different types of mind wandering topics would likely um, initiate activation of specific brain regions particularly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, moving on to another relevant concept. Uh, can we say that mindfulness is a state when no mind wandering is going on? It's very interesting to think about the relationship between mindfulness, which has been a, uh, a mental state that has been nurtured and developed for thousands of years, uh, and mind wandering. Um, there are, uh, are, are several different definitions of uh, mindfulness. Mm-hmm. In general, mindfulness involves being present in the moment, having one's uh, attention um, focused in the moment and uh, with their awareness uh, centered there. Uh, in some definitions, in addition to that, there's also this notion of a sort of an acceptance of, of the moment. And mindfulness uh, certainly plays, excuse me, uh, mind-wandering certainly relates to that first part of the definition, to the um, characteristic of being present in the moment. When people are uh, mind-wandering, they're, they're not, in a sense, uh, present to their, the circumstances around them. And there are a number of different uh, measures that have been developed to assess mindfulness, and we find routinely that people who score higher in mindfulness, mind wander less. Perhaps more exciting has been research looking at techniques that have been developed to foster mindfulness. Mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. particular, research on meditation, which involves encouraging people to focus on the breath and bring their attention back to the breath when it wanders. We've done research, and, and others have as well, which finds that when people are given training in mindfulness meditation, that that can actually uh, reduce their mind wandering. In one study, we found that mindfulness meditation training compared to an active control group in which participants were given nutrition training, that the mindfulness training not only reduced mind wandering while reading, but also um, improved working memory performance and um, improved reading comprehension performance. And the benefits in the reading comprehension performance were... um, associated with the reduction in mind wandering, suggesting that you could actually sort of improve your performance on reading simply by taking a mindfulness class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Jonathan, studies show that attention deficit hyperactivity disorder 
is associated with increased uh, frequency of mind wandering. Uh, what is uh, your view on this? Yes. Um, there was some uh, early research by uh, Leonard Giambra, which initially documented the relationship between mind wandering and uh, attention deficit disorder. And we have a paper just now under review which uh, establishes the same relationship and also looks at um, the, the, the nature of what, what drives that relationship. So there's sort of um, uh, two accounts for what might be going on. One is that people who um, are, uh, have attention deficit disorder may have impaired inhibitory ability and uh, just not be able to keep their mind focused on one thing or another. <coughs> Excuse me. And another factor um, is meta-awareness, that people with attention deficit disorder may fail to notice uh, that their minds are uh, wandering and so therefore trouble bringing it back. Mm -hmm. And we found in our study that meta-awareness seemed to play an important role. But it, there was also sort of a, a promising aspect to it. What we found is that people with attention deficit disorder mind-wandered more and they particularly mind-wandered in situations which they found disruptive, so they mind-wandered at inopportune times. We had them carry around a, a, a device that probed them at random times throughout their daily lives and asked them if they were mind-wandering. We found that people with attention deficit disorder symptoms attended to mind-wander more at times when they wished they had been paying attention. But what we also found is, is that these individuals varied in the degree to which they were aware of their mind-wandering. And again, this term meta-awareness. Mm -hmm. And what we found is, is that meta-awareness seemed to help insulate people with um, attention deficit disorder symptoms from the negative consequences of mind-wandering. Those people who were more aware of when they were mind-wandering didn't experience as many uh, of the disruptive mind-wandering episodes. So what this suggests tentatively, and this is certainly an area that deserving of more research, is that uh, encouraging people to pay attention to when they're mind-wandering and, and sort of check in and take note may be one way to minimize the negative impact of mind-wandering, particularly for individuals with attention deficit disorder. Now, this discussion so far is from research point of view, but from an individual's perspective, if I want to evaluate that do I spend too much time on mind-wandering activity? Am I wasting my time and my attention is not there most of the times where it should be? How can I assess myself? That's, that's an excellent question. Um, one thing that you could do would be to uh, simply uh, set up a timer on, um, say, uh, if you have an, a, a smartphone, uh, just set your timer to go off um, a certain number of times a day, say mm -hmm. eight times a day. And then every time it goes, goes off, just take a, a notice to see whether or not you're uh, mind-wandering uh, or not. And that'll then give you uh, somewhat of a sense of, of how often you're mind-wandering relative to, um, to the average person. The other thing I would recommend doing, if you, if you try that little experiment, would be to see if you are mind-wandering, were you mind-wandering at a time at which it was um, problematic? Because really, the, the big issue about mind-wandering is not how much you do it, but how much you do it at inopportune times. Mm -hmm. And so 
the key thing really to do is to uh, check in uh, on yourselves. Uh, with I'd encourage your listeners to check in on with themselves periodically and decide whether or not they're mind-wandering. And if they are mind-wandering, does it feel like the mind-wandering was interfering with what, what you were doing? Um, if you're mind-wandering on a stroll or while you're doing the dishes, then that's great. That may be um, a very productive thing to be doing. But if you're mind-wandering while your spouse is talking to you, uh, then that's, that's a problem. But even if you do catch yourself mind-wandering at these inopportune times, it's important to um, be, um, ease up on yourself and recognize that you're afflicted with the very same thing that all of us are. We all tend to, uh, tend to mind-wander. And I should also say that if individuals are interested in, uh, after paying attention to their mind-wandering for a period and, and deciding that they think they're mind-wandering more than they'd like, then I would encourage them to uh, get involved in a uh, meditation practice. It really is uh, quite remarkable, uh, both in helping you watch the mind, you can watch your own mind mind wander, and also in helping develop a, a practice of uh, greater presence in the now. If I check myself eight times a day that uh, am I mind wandering or not, at what value should I say that I am mind wandering uh, too much? Uh, four out of eight, six out of eight, or eight out of eight? Well, it's a little, again, the, um, I would say, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. the, the estimates have gone from between 25 to 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. The study that came up with the 50% estimate um, was uh, a large population, but these were all self-selected individuals who had um, gone to the site because they knew it was... Um, going to measure their uh, mind wandering. So it's possible that my intuition is, is that that's probably an exaggeration. I would, I would have that 25% of the time is probably a, um, uh, the, the, a more accurate estimate uh, of the average amount of time that people mind wander. So if you're, if you're mind wandering significantly more than 25% of the time, uh, that would mean that you're mind wandering more than average. Mm-hmm. But it's important to emphasize that just because you're mind wandering more than average uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's problematic. I mm-hmm. would also mm-hmm. expect that Einstein probably mind wandered much more than average, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, look where it got him. Mm-hmm. So really, what what a person needs to do is is it's not so much whether or not you're uh, mind wandering uh, more or less than average. It's paying attention to if it. If once you start noticing yourself mind wandering, um, if it seems that the mind wandering is interfering with um, the the tasks that you're uh, that you're trying to do, um, and if, if that's the case, then I would uh, urge people to consider engaging in uh, meditation and also mm-hmm. um, to uh, possibly try to tweak what it is that they're mind wandering uh, about. Mm-hmm. Um, if Sometimes when people mind wander, they engage in what's known as negative rumination, mm-hmm. where they're just thinking the same, you know, oh, uh, you know, am I going to get a job? Am I going to get a job? You know, they're, they're not making any forward headway. They're just sort of repeating the same uh, negative thought again and again and again. And in that type of uh, negative rumination, also known as sort of perseveration, mm-hmm. is, is not very productive. It, you're, you're not making headway on anything. And so that's the type of thing where... Uh, it might be uh, worth um, 
if, if that's what you find, if one finds that they're engaging in a lot of mind-wandering and that's of this negative rumination, then it might be time to uh, consider uh, speaking to a professional because there are all sorts of very effective techniques that can help people to get those kinds of unwanted thoughts under control. And what if I check myself eight times a day and I find out that I am always focusing on the task that I am doing and no mind wandering at all? Uh, should I be worried about this? Uh, is this something negative? That's a good question. Um, it really depends uh, on, the, um, on, on the person. Um, mm-hmm. I think that um, nowadays... Uh, people are may actually be losing opportunities for productive mind wandering because they uh, instead of mind wandering while they're say waiting online they're checking their iPhone uh, or they're we're always multitasking so much that we've stopped doing the um, the original uh, multitasking which is to just engage in lighthearted mind wandering. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I would be. I would be wary of um, if someone is, is uh, finding themselves always just very focused and present, um, and if they feel that that's um, a, a mode that, that works for them, I would be somewhat wary of, of discouraging them from, from maintaining that level of focus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that said, um, I do think that for many people, um, they're... Uh, nervous about letting their their mind wander they they feel like that's a a waste of time that they need to be occupying mm-hmm. their minds by doing something constantly and if they're not that they're 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 being idle and and I would just encourage you know people to lighten up and uh, uh enjoy your mind enjoy the fact that you can engage in time travel and and visit distant memories and and create plans and and imagine abstract ideas uh, that there's nothing nothing wrong with engaging in those activities uh, from time to time. Uh, and so um, if people are sort of stridently trying to avoid that, uh, I'd encourage them to lighten up a bit. And uh, the studies that you have conducted, um, is there data that supports this hypothesis that individuals who are more focused on the external factors and don't do mind-wandering are less creative? Well, um, you, you've hit a, a, a sore subject for me um, because we've run a number of studies on this and sometimes we find this relationship and sometimes we don't. We have found mm-hmm. in a number of studies that people who score higher in um, mindfulness score less on creativity and vice versa, people who score higher on mind-wandering uh, or are more creative. So we found that in some studies and yet we haven't found it in others. Um, so we're, we're still sort of grappling with why we sometimes see this relationship and, and sometimes uh, don't. I suspect that it has to do with um, sort of different ways in which people mind wander and the different ways in which people can be uh, mindful, that if people are mind wandering and if they're engaging in the non-productive kind of mind wandering, the the negative rumination and perseveration, but that's not a very productive kind. So if mm-hmm. um, people do a lot of that, then um, that's not going to be correlated with creativity. On the other hand, those individuals who engage in the more sort of lighthearted, uh, 
mind-wandering where they're thinking about creative ideas or, or, or thinking about the future um, or just in general thinking about more positive things, that kind of mind-wandering may be more beneficial. And it may be that in some studies we've had um, one kind of mind-wanderer in other studies uh, another kind. Uh, similarly, it may be that there are, are some people who have um, developed a, an ability to um, maintain mindfulness and still encourage creativity. For example, there's research which suggests that meditation, even though it's associated with uh, mindfulness, and as I say, there's this mixed relationship between mindfulness and creativity, the meditation itself is associated with creativity. It seems to allow unconscious processes to uh, reorganize themselves. So um, there may be different kinds of mindfulness, too, and that mindfulness that's being driven by people who've allowing uh, their minds to just be quiet uh, that, uh, for periods of time, that that may be a, a kind of mindfulness that is especially uh, suited for creativity. So the, the, the unfortunately long-winded answer is that there is uh, some evidence that um, mind-wandering, the people with a tendency for mind-wandering uh, are more creative, uh, but it's a, a complicated story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Jonathan, consciousness is also one of your research interests. Uh, we know there is no universally accepted definition of consciousness. However, if I invite you to define consciousness, how would you proceed? I like to make a, a distinction between three levels of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, unconscious, which is information that is not in our experience at all. So if you were to flash an image at um, a very short presentation rate, say um, 15 milliseconds, following it by with a, um, a, a pattern so you really couldn't have an after image, that would be unconscious. And then consciousness, which is our experience. Consciousness is just what is happening in our moment-to-moment experience from the time we wake up to the time we fall asleep. And then uh, meta-awareness or meta-consciousness, which is our explicit awareness of our conscious uh, state. And I think that we are um, experientially conscious. We have this state of experience from uh, all day long, unless we take a nap. But meta-consciousness, where we take stock of what's going on in our minds, that's much rarer. We only periodically step back and go, oh, I'm mind-wandering, or oh, I'm upset, oh, I'm stressed. Um, And it's interesting because I think oftentimes when people talk about consciousness, they get confused between these uh, different usages of the meaning. So people may, for example, be experiencing stress, but just not notice it to themselves. They may not have explicitly labeled it. And uh, what metaconsciousness does is it is that state where we go, oh, I'm really feeling stressed now. And when one notices their experience, when they label it as opposed to just experiencing it, that's the first step to, towards being able to do something about it. So I think that um, recognizing that there's not just this either conscious or not, but that it's unconscious, conscious, metaconscious, can be very helpful in allowing us to um, take stock of the different mental states that we experience during the day and potentially remedying those stocks, or sorry, remedying those states when um, they're not to our liking. 
Jonathan, in your view, does consciousness occur inside a brain or is there anything else involved as well? Oh, <laughs> wow. Um, so, I think that um, scientists need to um, be sure and uh, maintain great humility uh, on questions of this uh, nature. <laughs> I think that um, science has made uh, great strides in um, understanding things, and, you know, we, we are certainly, you just look out your window and uh, throughout your day, all the amazing things that science has, has achieved. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very tempting to feel that it's sort of got it all wrapped up. But um, when it comes to consciousness, I think that we really, really um, are a long way from understanding what it means uh, for a three-and-a-half-pound meatloaf, which is our brain, to be able to produce experience mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. We really don't understand what kind of explanation would would be required to explain that. It seems as if conscious experience, the kind of thing that you use to explain, say, um, toaster ovens and mm-hmm. bridges, mm-hmm. it seems very different from the kind of thing that would be required to explain um, the arising of conscious experience. So because... Uh, on the one hand, we are so much in the uh, in the dark about what it actually would mean to explain it, and on the other hand, consciousness is the thing which is the most absolutely fundamental aspect of our own existence. I mean, there's mm-hmm. nothing you could possibly value more than your own conscious uh, experience. If if there was a a zombie of you which had everything that you have and all your skills, but just lacked internal experience that would do you no good at all. So Mm -hmm. it is the absolute, utterly most important thing. It's the thing that we know um, the best. Uh, That is, individually, we all have absolute confidence in the existence of our uh, subjective experience. All this is to say that um, there's something known as the explanatory gap or the hard problem of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I think we are very far from knowing how in the end, the answer to that is going to be resolved. Given that, um, personally, I think that we need to be cautious in uh, assuming that consciousness is simply uh, a product of the brain. I think that is a, is a, a perfectly uh, reasonable um, hypothesis. It's one that uh, most of my colleagues uh, take uh, on, on faith, and, uh, and I understand why they have that perspective, mm-hmm. but I think that given what we don't know about consciousness, um, that they, it would be appropriate to have some humility with respect to that hypothesis. I'll just say further that, in my own view, mm-hmm. I think it's possible that consciousness may be a characteristic not just of brains, but maybe a characteristic of, um, of all of matter, that mm-hmm. it, it may be sort of a, a fundamental property of the uh, universe, um, something like, like gravity or electricity or something like that, and that um, hundreds of years from now, we may um, look at the, the current sort of understanding of consciousness and think that it was uh, very primitive indeed. Uh, some researchers suggest that we can never solve the hard problem of consciousness, and they present two reasons for that. Uh, one reason is that our brains do not have the ability to process the complicated information uh, 
uh, that uh, would lead uh, uh, to an understanding of uh, consciousness and the second reason is that we cannot solve a problem if we are part of the problem as we all experience consciousness we all are conscious and we do not have the ability to observe consciousness from outside so we cannot solve this hard problem of consciousness what is your take on this argument that the hard problem of consciousness is unsolvable <clears throat> that is a very hard question uh, needless <laughs> to say um i think it is I, I certainly think that it is possible uh in fact um likely that um there will be um some level of uh, understanding about the nature of consciousness that we will uh, never be able um, to reach uh, for the types of reasons uh, that you're uh, that, that you're mentioning that that because we are sort of using the tool on itself that may create certain kinds of uh, of constraints. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think I'm more optimistic uh, than. Um, than uh, than the way that you phrased it, mm -hmm. I think that we will be able to make um, a major uh, headway in um, in conceptualizing uh, the nature of, uh, of of consciousness, and and certainly um, creating alternative models, thinking thinking out of the box about what it might be. I've speculated um, that uh, uh, consciousness may entail something that understanding consciousness may require postulating the existence of, a, of an additional dimension or dimensions of reality that mm -hmm. we um, are actually... Uh, uh, it's sort of like there's a, a wonderful story written by Edwin Abbott mm -hmm. in uh, the 1890s called Flatland, mm -hmm. in which he talked about a, a two-dimensional world uh, that was visited by a, a three-dimensional um, sphere, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, which, and the sphere was able to um, actually take a citizen of Flatland um, a square and pull the square out of flatland and now the square was able to look down and see into everything and so there's this interesting way where when you add an additional dimension it gives you a perspective that you never had before and of course consciousness is exactly that it provides us a perspective on reality that wouldn't otherwise be available and so uh, on the one hand um, I think it seems quite possible that in the future we may come up with conceptualizations of consciousness which postulate the existence of some additional fundamental aspects of reality, such as additional dimensions, that may be critical uh, in helping us get a, a better vantage on it. But again, returning to the example of Flatland, in this story, the square asks the sphere, this is amazing uh, that there's an additional dimension of uh, this third dimension. Is there, is there another dimension? Is there a fourth dimension beyond the ones that you experience? And the sphere, it becomes indignant and, uh, and throws the square back into flatland because the, the presumption of suggesting that there might be any um, realm of understanding even greater than the sphere had. Mm -hmm. And I think this is an important lesson, too, although I think we'll continue to make um, uh, increasing understanding about the nature of consciousness. I, I suspect that there will always be another level and another level after that, and we'll never get to sort of the, the, the final understanding. Professor Jonathan Schooler, thank you very much for being with us. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Thanks. I really enjoyed it.